Chapter 9. Judges Need Jurisdiction Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Romans 13.1 The word is plural, authorities. The frame of reference in Romans 13 is civil, but not exclusively so. Even civil authority is to be manifested through plural offices. This is a fundamental aspect of biblical government. Power is not to be concentrated in any single office. The most important division is between the office of king and priest. The power of one office is to be augmented by the other, but also checked when it becomes tyrannical. Both are offices under God. Both represent God. Neither exclusively represents God. When judgment is brought in God's name, it must be within a lawfully designated jurisdiction. Churches do not physically punish evildoers, and civil governments do not excommunicate people, denying them access to the Lord's Supper. Civil governments do not possess the authority to cast people to the edge of the pits of hell, as the church does, turning people's bodies over to Satan in order that they might be brought back inside the covenant, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Because men today do not fear God or God's eternal judgment, they do not fear excommunication. Churches that do not honor, at least by a careful investigation of the facts and trial, the excommunications of another church are adding their authority to the skepticism of the covenant breakers. So what do men fear today? They fear an institution that can punish them physically and economically, the state. As men lose faith in God, they gain new respect for the state. This is a great temptation for officers of the state to usurp their God-given authority and extend their jurisdiction beyond what God has delegated. But judgment eventually comes. In the Old Testament, it sometimes came in the most feared form of all, leprosy. Leprosy and Jurisdiction Leprosy! The word strikes terror in those who know its disfiguring work. We are not sure that the disease we call leprosy today is the same one called leprosy in the Bible. Lepers were placed under quarantine in the Bible, Leviticus 13, isolated from family, work, and worship. It was considered the ultimate curse. Victims were not merely sick, they were unclean. Leprosy was like sin. Its infection would slowly consume its prey. There was no known cure other than divine intervention. It was considered the special judgment of God, and only God could remove it. This is one reason why anyone cured of leprosy had to offer sacrifices to make atonement. Leviticus 14 When we raise the subject of leprosy, we raise the subject of lawful jurisdiction. Law equals juris, declare equals dictio. In the Old Testament, the priest had jurisdiction over quarantine for leprosy. They would declare a suspected person either leprous or clean. Their word was sovereign. There are a number of biblical accounts where God vented his wrath by infecting the rebellious with leprosy. The important point to bear in mind is that in the two cases surveyed here, God inflicted leprosy as a judgment on people for having rebelled against God's lawful authority. They violated the office of another God-ordained ruler. Again, the focus was jurisdictional. The question is, who has the lawful authority to judge? Who speaks for God in any given instance? In short, who has jurisdiction? Miriam. Miriam, Moses' sister, was struck with leprosy when she and Aaron challenged God's voice of Moses as his mediator. So the 
anger of the Lord burns against them, Miriam and Aaron. And he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Numbers 12.10 Their challenge was a serious offense. Aaron was the high priest, the supreme religious leader in Israel. Miriam was a prophetess, the head of the spirit-filled women, Exodus 15, 20, and 21. Though they each held high religious positions in Israel, their authority was limited by God. Any attempt to usurp the mediatorial position given to Moses by God was met with judgment. Uzziah God's laws are not to be tampered with. King Uzziah is said to have been proud, 2 Corinthians 26, 16. His pride led him to go beyond his jurisdiction. While he was chief of state, being the king in Judah, he was not a priest. King Uzziah could not assume the role of a priest and perform ecclesiastical functions. He had no jurisdiction in the temple, the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament church. Uzziah ignored God's law and acted corruptedly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, 2 Chronicles 26.16. Is God serious about this jurisdictional separation? Apparently he is. The king was struck with the most feared disease, leprosy, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Verse 21. He lost access to the temple, was isolated from the general population, and lost his kingdom to his son, Jotham, who was over the king's house judging the people of the land. Verse 21. The priests. Azariah, the priest, was not passive in this whole affair. He knew the limitations of the king's power. He, along with 80 priests of the Lord, verse 17, took action against the king. Notice that they opposed Uzziah the king, verse 18. They informed him that it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, verse 18. The priest commanded Uzziah to get out of the sanctuary, verse 18. These ecclesiastical officials are called valiant men, verse 17. Why? They acted with great risk. While there were 80 of them, the king still commanded an army. He could have put them to death. There was a precedent for this. When Ahimelech, the priest, helped David against King Saul, for Samuel 21-22, through 22, King Saul called on Doeg the Edomite to attack the priests after the king's own servants refused. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 who wore the linen ephod, 1 Samuel 22.18. Doeg the Edomite, one who despised the covenant, had no qualms about killing priests. In our day, if our nation moves further from its biblical foundation, we'll see similar despisers who will rape the bride of Christ, the church. King Uzziah had Saul's hate in his eye. Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. 2 Chronicles 26.19 The priests were not casual about their duties. Too often the church has been passive as the state has increasingly encroached on the jurisdiction of the church. While they knew their lives were at stake, they were more concerned with the honor of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26.18 Back to basics. Family, church, and state. The leprosy of Uzziah is a dramatic scene. It brings out the essence of church-state relations. Let's go back and study the biblical relationship between church and state. The easiest way to understand this relationship is to begin with the family. 
It too is a government with a specific jurisdiction. The infringement on the church by the state is paralleled by a similar encroachment against family authority, usually for the same reason. The secular humanist state will not endure competition. Once the state repudiates God, it becomes a god unto itself. It will not tolerate the worship of other gods. The family, because it is a God-ordained government, competes with the secularized state. The family has rulers, laws, and subjects. The Bible establishes multiple covenantal jurisdictions, family, church, and state. Each has a specific limited jurisdiction where a limited amount of authority and power operate. While the jurisdictions may differ, the same law is to be used for each. While the standard for each is the Bible, the application of Scripture differs as an individual moves from one jurisdiction to another. For example, a father has authority to discipline his own children for an infraction, but he cannot discipline another parent's child. Parental authority and power operate within this specified family jurisdiction. Parents can delegate jurisdiction to other parents, say, in a school setting. Authority, however, is not usurped nor claimed by the school. It is delegated and transferred by the parents. The father, who may be an elder in his church, has ecclesiastical jurisdiction, along with other elders within his own church, to discipline an erring member according to the guidelines laid down in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 6. He cannot, however, go to another church and exercise discipline there, unless formally and officially appealed to. His authority and power to exercise discipline is limited to a specified ecclesiastical jurisdiction. A man who is a father in family government and an elder in church government may also be an elected official in civil government. Because of the church-state jurisdictional separation, an elder who becomes a civil official would have to demit the ministry. He certainly should not exercise both offices simultaneously. Only Jesus wears the crowns of priest and king. As soon as he acts as a civil representative, his area of jurisdiction is limited to civil government. He cannot use his authority and power as a civil governor to infringe upon family and church governments with the sword. He must stay within the bounds of civil affairs when he is acting as an elected official. It should be pointed out, however, that there is a qualitative difference between family government and church government and civil governments. Fathers are not ordained with oil, Zechariah 4.14, in context of chapters 3 and 4. Thus, the family as an institution is not in all ways parallel to state and church. This is why the family cannot by itself lawfully resist the state. Biblically, only the church has been ordained to do so. The family ought to find protection under the church. Family Worshipping Revolutionaries This is one very good reason to reject the revolutionary radical segments of the so-called identity movement. Members of numerous radical religious groups claim that they have a lawful right to rebel against civil authority because of their supposed link to the ten lost tribes of Israel. They are trying to make family or tribal authority supreme over civil authority. This is anti-biblical to the core. The family is not the church, nor is it an alternative to the church. Paralleling the decline in Christianity in our day has also been the rise of a new humanist familialism, which is proposed as the only lawful alternative to the humanist state. Such a choice is inherently unlawful and anti-biblical. The church is the protector of the family. It is the God-ordained government that alone can lawfully authorize and therefore legitimize family resistance to the state. In short, from a biblical perspective, 
no church, no lawful family resistance. Anyone who teaches otherwise is a covenant breaker, a revolutionary, and should be avoided. He will eventually be smashed by the state, and any association with him will produce unpleasant consequences. If the church is corrupt, then the state's tyranny is simply God's lawful judgment, just as it was when Assyria and Babylon carried away the Israelites. Tyranny in such a case is a step toward repentance, revival, and reform. What can the church do? First and foremost, the church can preach. It can set forth God's permanent standards of right and wrong for individuals, families, churches, and civil government. Preaching applies God's standards to this world. A church that refuses to preach the whole counsel of God has become an accomplice of evil in every area of life not touched upon by its preaching. Second, it administers the sacraments. Baptism places people under the covenant structure of God, and therefore under God's protection. The Lord's Supper is God's way to commune formally with men. We come into the presence of God in a unique way. This is a way of spiritually empowering the church. Third, the church can begin to preach the Psalms of Judgment, sometimes called the imprecatory Psalms. The church formally and judicially calls God's external wrath down upon the heads of public officials who are publicly disobeying God's law. Psalm 83 is a good example of these Psalms. O oh my God, make them as the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with thy tempest, and terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish. Verses 13 through 17. Of course, pagans believe that the God of the Bible is a myth. They believe that he is incapable of judging anyone in history, and probably not in eternity. Therefore, they believe that the church is impotent. Prayers of Christians are impotent, and they can safely ignore God's bride. This is what a lot of Christians believe too. For them, imprecatory psalms are not good enough. The Lord's Supper is not powerful enough. No, they say that we need guns and ammo. We need army surplus camouflage garments and weekend war games in the woods. We need all the tools of the power religionist. Or else they take the other approach and conclude that we need to become doormats in the name of Jesus, wimps for Christ. Instead of the power religion, they adopt the escape religion. Both groups reject the biblical alternative, the dominion religion. They do not want to do covenantal work in God's way. The Limits of Jurisdiction the Bible defines the limits of jurisdiction. It must also be used to prescribe the specifics of operation for each jurisdiction. The Bible is a blueprint for family government, for church government, and for civil government. If the Bible is the blueprint for only the family and church and not the state, then immediate jurisdictional infringements take place. For example, according to the Bible, parents have educational jurisdiction of their children. If the state repudiates the Bible as a blueprint for statecraft, children will be seen as wards of the state and thus under its jurisdiction. Taxes will be raised by the state, teachers will be certified by the state, schools will be accredited by the state, and students will be compelled by the state to be educated by the state. What if the state decides that more taxes are needed to fund some of its programs, programs that must be defined by the Bible? Can the state legitimately tax the church to raise the needed revenue? 
The state certainly has the authority and power of tax, Romans 13, 7, Matthew 22, 15 through 22. But can it tax any way it wishes? Can it tax the church? If the Bible is not a blueprint for taxation and the limits of civil jurisdiction, then the state is free to tax as it pleases. God has established both church and state. They are not, in principle, hostile toward one another. But because each is a government with a certain amount of authority and power, we should expect power struggles. Sometimes the power struggle is the church attempting to impose its will on the state. The church grows then, not by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but by the power of the sword. More often than not, the state imposes its will on the church because it sees the church as a competing government. This occurs because the state has already become secularized. It has repudiated the Bible as its standard. Of course, the state is secularized due to the secularization of the nation. By the time the state rejects the Bible, the nation as a whole has already rejected the Bible as a blueprint for life. Civil government reflects self, family, and church governments. Church-State Cooperation The Bible portrays church and state as cooperating governments. Most people are aware that the Bible is the standard for the priest as they carry out their priestly duties. But what of the king? Was he obligated to follow the Bible as well? The Bible makes it clear that he was. Now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue to live long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 18-20 While church and state as jurisdictions are separate, religion is not. Both priests and kings are commanded to follow the same standard of government, even though not all laws apply to each in the same way. We can go so far as to say that the presence of the priest was a reminder to the king that they were to help him interpret the law as it related to civil affairs. This is precisely what Azariah and the 80 priests were doing when they confronted King Uzziah. They were reminding him of his limited jurisdiction. Moral Criteria for Rulership The criteria for leadership in both church and state is the same. When Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, counseled Moses to decentralize the judicial arm of the civil government and choose lesser magistrates, he laid down the qualifications for those who would rule. They were to be able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. Exodus 18.21 In Deuteronomy 1, 9-15, Moses recounts the circumstances of Jethro's counsel and adds that these leaders were to be wise and discerning and experienced men, not showing partiality and judgment. Deuteronomy 1.13.17 Church leaders in the New Testament are to exhibit similar ethical qualities and real-life experience. 1 Timothy 3.1-7 Being above reproach can be compared to men of truth. Those who hate dishonest gain is similar to being free from the love of money. An experienced man is someone who is not a new convert. Parallel Jurisdictions Moses became the chief judicial officer in Israel, assisted by numerous lesser magistrates. Exodus 18, 17 through 26. 
Aaron, Moses' brother, became the chief ecclesiastical officer as high priest, assisted by numerous lesser priests, Leviticus 8. In the days of the judges, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Gideon, and Samson served as political officers, Judges 1-13, through while the son of Micah, Phinehas, Eli, and the Levites served in an ecclesiastical capacity, Judges 17, 20, 28, 1 Samuel 1 through 8. During the period of the monarchy, King Saul served in a civil capacity, while Ahimelech ministered as the chief ecclesiastical leader in the nation, 1 Samuel 10 and 21. There was King David and priest Abiathar, 1 Chronicles 15, 11. King Solomon and priest Zadok, 1 Kings 1, 45. King Joash and priest Jehoiada, 2 Kings 11 and King Josiah and priest Hilkiah, 2 Kings 22.4. Even after the return from exile, church and state as parallel institutions operated with Governor Nehemiah, Nehemiah 7, and priest Ezra, Nehemiah 8. This jurisdictional cooperation culminated in the priestly office of Joshua and the civil office of Zebarubal, Zechariah 4.14. All are ministers. The New Testament describes leaders in the church and state as ministers, Mark 10, 42-45, and Romans 13, 4. Even when describing the role of the civil magistrate, the Greek word for deacon is used. The word underscores the ruler's duty to serve, rather than to lord it over those under his authority. Dominion comes through service. The civil minister rules for our good, and he is an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil, Romans 13, 4. How does the civil magistrate determine what is good from what is evil? As God's minister, he must consult God's word. Jurisdictional Usurpation There is always the danger of jurisdictional usurpation. When, say, civil government removes the jurisdictional framework of the church, the Bible cites a number of examples of how the king sought to overrule the authority and function of the church. King Saul assumed for himself the duties of the priest when he offered sacrifices rather than staying within the bounds of his kingly duties. 1 Samuel 15, 9-15, 22. In another place, King Saul killed the godly priest Ahimelech because he would not fulfill the king's political goals. 1 Samuel 21, 1. King Jeroboam established his state religion in Bethel and Dan. Non-Levites of the worst character were appointed to serve as priests, 1 Kings 12, 26-31. Of course, we've already seen how King Uzziah was struck with leprosy for usurping the priestly function of burning incense in the temple, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But there are times when the church forgets its God-ordained role. The church can deny its prophetic ministry when it is seduced by politics, having lost faith in our transcendent God, putting trust in human action, Isn't this what happened when the people wanted to crown Jesus as king, to make him their political ruler? They had given up hope in the transformation of man from the inside out. They denied the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the dead heart of man. Man's salvation would come through political power. Jesus rebuffed their desires to make him a political savior. While politics has a role to play, it is only one role among many. Summary The ninth basic principle in the biblical blueprint for civil government is that lawful jurisdiction for any government is established by God in the Bible. 
To violate these God-ordained jurisdictions is to become rebellious. It brings on God's judgment in history. God judges those who tamper with his law. There is a jurisdictional separation between church and state. The Bible defines the limits of jurisdiction. Church and state were established to cooperate, not compete. Leadership in both church and state is based on ethical considerations. Church and state are parallel governments, bound by the same law. Leaders in both church and state are given the title minister. The Bible condemns jurisdictional usurpation. God establishes multiple government jurisdictions, and therefore multiple hierarchies, in order to reflect his own plural nature, but also to restrain the sinfulness of man. He brought judgment and history against the builders of the Tower of Babel because they proposed to build a one-world messianic state. They wanted to give their own name to themselves, defining themselves without reference to God, and to establish their own jurisdictions. The criteria for serving as judge in church and state is morality. Men are not to use their offices to pursue personal economic gain or power. They are to execute judgment as God's delegated representatives. This representative character of all civil and ecclesiastical offices is basic to every human government. God brings his people freedom. One means to this freedom is a system of potentially competing delegated sovereignties. When men sin and overstep their limits, the meaning of sin, they often try to extend their authority over others. Parallel governments help reduce the extent of such lawless behavior. This is the meaning of federalism, of checks and balances. Most Americans are confused when it comes to church-state relations. If they were asked to choose between the language of the First Amendment of our Constitution and the language of the Soviet Constitution, few could tell the difference. The critics of Christ and his law have done a masterful job in rewriting history. See chapter 13 and the appendix for details. In summary, 1. All authority is delegated from God. 2. Obedience to God-authorized judges is required. 3. There is no single human authority. Human authority is always plural. 4. King and priest are the most obvious examples of divided authority. 5. When judgment is brought in God's name, it must be within a lawfully designated jurisdiction. 6. Men mainly fear the state today because they do not fear God or excommunication. 7. Leprosy was an Old Testament judgment from God. 8. King Uzziah was judged with leprosy because he refused to honor the sanction, set apartness, of the sanctuary. 9. The secular humanist state refuses to honor the other jurisdictions, family and church. 9. Fathers possess God-given limited authority over wives and children. 11. The church is the primary protector of the family. 12. The family is not the key institution the church is. 13. The church's weapons are preaching, the sacraments, and prayer, for example, in precatory psalms. 14. The Bible establishes the jurisdictional limits on each institution. 15. Church and state should cooperate. 16. Both are under biblical law. Both must rule, judge, in terms of biblical law. 17. The criteria are moral for both the civil and ecclesiastical offices. 18. The jurisdictions are parallel. 19. The officers of both are ministers of God.